Hi everyone. Welcome again to Reese is Stranger Than Fiction. I was saying hello to the listeners. Mm. You've just jumped in, have you? But hi to Chris as well. Hi, Chris. All right, hello. It's the classic pairing back, just us two, me and Chris, doing a bit of a mini stranger for you. Just a little palate cleanser after the Panacea Society, which was quite serious and involved. So we thought just a sort of fun throwaway episode for you this time. I've got a drink to just pass over to Crodgers. It's a can of beer. Great. Oh, I've thrown my notes on the floor. I can't multitask. I've got one as well. We don't just share one beer between two. That would be Not insane. Not in this house. Not in this house, for God's sake. It's just a nice beer. It's called Spirit of Cambridge Pale Ale, because today we're going to be talking about Cambridge. Great. It's made by Wild Sky Brewing, who are a local brewer. Um, the Kansas Linton. Well, Sure. Local. Yeah, home of the Travel Tavern. <laughs> home of Linton Travel Tavern. I'll do this. this. Oh, it's got a good um, hoppy burst, does it? Uh, oh! I've sprayed beer on the pop screen. I'll be in trouble later. <laughs> the good thing about foam, it just disappears. Mm. It doesn't even count as a substance. <laughs> it's just gone in no time. I don't know why they're so fizzy. Yeah, it's nice, hoppy, citrus. Oh, yeah. What else would you add? Yeah, all those things. It's a classic pale ale, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice. So, Spirit of Cambridge. Yes, as I say, today we're going to be talking about an event that happened in Cambridge in the year 1838. Bloody ages ago. Bloody ages ago. Do you want to hear more? Yeah, why not? Now, I heard about this fun-sounding event when I went to the Museum of Cambridge a few months ago, and they have a painting depicting this very event by the artist Richard Banks Harridan. He was an artist. He did quite a lot of paintings of Cambridge. I wish I was called Harridan. Uh, it's not spelt the, like the, <laughs> the awful hag. It's <laughs> Another fact about Harridan, the artist, is that he's buried in Mill Road Cemetery. Ah, in another which, grave plot you'll never find. Possibly, because, because I still haven't found Alice Lorne. No. It's so overgrown. So it's I have like to a jungle in there. Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe less now because it's winter. But I think the winter, the winter plants grow like the ivy. And they make it even more difficult. But yes, Harridan's also in Morris Cemetery, so maybe one day we'll find him in there. So, what is this event I hear you cry? I mean, I was literally crying that. What is it? In my mind. It's the coronation dinner. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the coronation dinner. So hang on, uh, who was coronated then in 1838? Well, you tell me. Uh, Victoria. Yes. Right. Uh, it was a grand day to celebrate the coronation of Victoria. Is coronated the correct? Coronated. Can you be coronated? Co- coroned? <laughs> what, what, would you, what would it be if not coronated? Yeah, I guess it must be, mustn't it? I've, just, it's, I've never definitely heard it. definitely not coroned. <laughs> That's madness. So. It was Thursday the 28th of June, so even though now it's winter, we have to imagine it's summer. Okay. Well, so just feel, you know, feel toasty. I have got an imagination. Yeah. Strangely enough, Victoria had actually ascended to the throne over a year earlier. Oh dear. But I guess it takes a long time to organise a coronation. Well, why did they plan it for a Thursday then? (laughs) 
What day would you pick? Well, the weekend. No, because weekends didn't really exist in those days. You can't have it on a Sunday. That's God's mm, day. Okay, fair enough. And Saturdays weren't really God, a thing. God is very protective. Well, sure, you can't be coronating a queen on God's day. It was Thursday, the 28th of June. I mean, Friday, sure. Have it on a Friday. <laughs> I suppose Friday, if you've got the hangover, then at least there's only one more day to go. That's how Thursday's the new Friday. Yeah. When I was in my 20s, not now. <laughs> well, it's God. the new Friday now. Well, there's no Friday anymore. <laughs> Friday's off limits. It's just, you know, a rare... Just a week of endless Tuesdays. A, a very rare outing. <laughs> and then two days of feeling shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's life when you're fucking 40. I've just turned 40, by the way. I know, it's shocking when you hear my youthful voice. Now, let's move on Okay. from that tedious personal business. Do you know how old Victoria was when mm. she came to the throne? Well, I know she lived to quite a ripe old age mm-hmm. and that she reigned into the 20th century just mm-hmm. didn't see. So I'm going to say she was in her early 30s. No. Oh. Gosh, I thought you'd be closer. She was 18. Oh. So she was as young as you can possibly be and still be a monarch. Wow. Are you not allowed to be a monarch if you're under 18, I suppose? Well, not. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a, before we get to the coronation dinner which is the main event. I'm just going to, as a starter, if you like, going to tell you a little story about the succession because this was quite interesting and it turned out I don't really know very much at all about how the lineage of the monarchs of the UK has worked. Now, Victoria was the niece of George III. Yep, Mad King George. Mad King George. And she was the daughter of George's fourth son, Okay. So George the Third. George the Fourth. No. So George the Third had had quite a few sons. Right. When George the Third died, his first son George became George the Fourth. Yes. And he had been the Prince Regent. Exactly. Who um, was reigning while George the Third was yes. too mad to do his stuff. Uh, and we know about George the the Fourth because of Blackadder. Because of Blackadder, where he's played brilliantly by Hugh Laurie. Yeah. He's also played in. If people don't know about Blackadder, which maybe not everyone does, he's in not the... Everyone's <laughs> no, not everyone's 40. Well, I, my next point of reference was going to be the film The, the Madness, Madness of, of King, King George, George, which, I mean... <laughs> not uh, everyone's 35. No. <laughs> uh, in which he's played by Rupert Everett. Oh, OK, yeah. Also, probably quite well. I I've mean, never seen it. It's not going to be as good as Hugh Laurie, though, is it? It's probably going to be a different characterisation, I'd say. Less hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but I always feel like there's a bit of... Hilarity about George Prince Regent, that's and that's why he you Laurie... know him from his Hugh Laurie. No, because he was a bit of a ludicrous man. He built... well, yes. Yeah. So, so obviously Hugh Laurie, like Blackadder, takes it to absolute yes, extremes, exactly, doesn't it? Exactly. That's why it's funny. But that's why it works. He built Brighton Pavilion. What a ludicrous building! I mean, it's quite good. Isn't it's it? good, but it's mad. And we'll just have one whole room full of golden dragons. <laughs> so George the Fourth, once he was crowned, only actually lasted another decade. Oh, okay. So he didn't have that long left. So he he wasn't that old. He was young when he was the Prince Regent. Oh, but old when he was crowned. Well, they just didn't live that no, long. No, I suppose not. Except Victoria. Yes. So once George the Fourth died, he had had only one child, uh-huh. a daughter called Charlotte, and she had predeceased him. Oh, really? So who would be next monarch? Now it passes down to the next brother. Yeah, second brother. He was William, so yes. he became William the Fourth. But William. After just a few years on the throne, became quite ill. Right. William's problem was he too had no legitimate uh-huh. heir. Okay. He also had some children who'd predeceased him, and he had a rather remarkable ten illegitimate <laughs> children. It's but like of, Game of Thrones. But of course, they can't be there. So was Victoria out uh, bumping off all the illegitimate heirs? <laughs> 
I don't think they even came into the picture. No. So Victoria became the heir presumptive. So hang on, hang kind on, of... hang on. What about the third child? Um, so George the fourth, then William, William the fourth. Well, then... I guess they just didn't survive, right? Or they weren't around because Victoria became the. This seems like a very so holy, Vic... holy bit of so... research. No, it's not holy. It just shows you how complicated the laws of succession are. So by the time Victoria became the heir presumptive, her father was dead. Also dead, yeah. But and she, she was, was the eldest of his kids. Yes, exactly. But this is in the era before, because it's only reasonably recently that female children of monarchs have been given the same level of hierarchy as male children, right? It's still a thorny issue because if there's a male heir or, you know, Say Victoria had had a brother. Yes. Had that brother been younger than her, yes. they would have still been the exactly. heir. Exactly. So that was where I was getting Yes. To. But I remember when the first child of William and Kate Middleton was born, mm-hmm. it turned out to be George, didn't it? Another George. Yeah. Why go with George? He'll be king one day. Well, I know, but don't... <laughs> Were the Georges that good? I would have... You know, I'd have, I feel so, like I'd have looked for a better one. George 1, George 2. We don't know anything about them, frankly, True. do we? Three. George 3, mad. George 4 enormous trousers but there was a debate that was like you know given that we're now in the 21st century if their first child had been a daughter would they have altered the rules of succession they have so maybe they have now but i I remember it being a kind of and then it was like oh it's a boy anyway we don't need to worry about it that's immaterial for at least another (laughs) hundred years sweep this under the carpet again three monarchs to go (laughs) till we get to the point where we have to worry about it again so victoria was the heir presumptive the problem was was when William became ill. She was not old enough to ascend the throne. She was 17. And William absolutely hated Victoria's mother, (laughs) who would have been the regent had he died. So he basically held on. He held on. (laughs) He absolutely held on. And just a few months after Victoria's 18th birthday, he finally... my work here is done. Exactly. He 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 held on for all he could. Yeah, he apparently hated Victoria's mother so much that it was a kind of very, very well-known feud. And he denounced her at a dinner party once right. and Victoria fled the room in tears at the kind of animosity between her beloved uncle and her mother. Her beloved uncle, a.k.a. the king. A.k.a. you have to beloved the king, don't you? <laughs> so it all worked out fine. William held on. We don't need to worry about the mother and Victoria ascended the throne. Right, yeah. Um, And also, just one more quick point of succession Mm -hmm. while we're on the subject. This was the Hanoverian royal family. Yeah. From 1714, this family of monarchs had jointly ruled both Britain and Hanover in Germany. Yeah. However... Hanoverian law said, no, no, no female monarchs. Oh, okay. No, sir, we can't have that. So when Victoria came to the throne, it went solely back to being that she was the monarch of Britain. Right. And the fifth son of George the Third became the king of Hanover. So it kind of jumped down past yeah. Victoria onto the next one. And he was apparently incredibly unpopular. His name was Ernest. King Ernest. King Ernest, unpopular Uncle Ernest, right. became king of Hanover. Well, maybe that was fitting. Could be, could be. So we didn't have to have Ernest, thank God. I don't know anything about him. So that's enough talk of royal families. Right. Isn't it, I think? Probably. I think you've set the uh, set the ground. I just I just thought it was interesting because I think I know obviously that sometimes it's siblings, but I think I hadn't realized it was quite so many siblings in a row and right. then it had sort of jumped to a niece and it had skipped around all these yeah, skim over the illegitimate children, quite a lot of sadly of children who die before they 
can ascend the throne. So, mm-hmm. you know, you end up with this situation where you're kind of scrabbling around for, a, for an heir, much like Game of Thrones. Stroke the royal family now. <laughs> Any royal family ever, probably. Okay, no more talk of them or we shall go mad. Now it's time to talk about the coronation dinner. Hooray! Hooray! So you can imagine Victoria ascends the throne, mm-hmm. the talk goes up, we must have a grand coronation. So some people are off in London organising the kind of official coronation, but all around the country people are saying, well, we should do something to mark this momentous occasion. Fly uh, strings of tiny flags outside our house. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. Drink tea. Yeah. Drink tea till we can no longer contain our bladders and Did tea tea exist yet? Yeah, spews across the, the carpet. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> and what they decided in Cambridge to do was that they would hold a gigantic day of feasting. Sounds like a good plan. It was decided that there should be a feast held on Parker's Peace, which is the kind of green area in the middle of Cambridge. One of the green areas. One of the green areas in the middle of Cambridge. Also notable for... The invention of football. Apparently so. So I hear. Do you know anything more about that? No, only that I I think the rules to association football were established after basically a kickabout on Parker's piece. (laughs) And I always heard, but I don't know if it's a, a kind of a myth, that the width of a goal is the width between two trees yeah, on Parker's Peace. Yeah, two particular piece, trees. Two particular trees that yeah. were always used as, as a goal. But anyway, so it's been there for, you know, it's this kind of green area. It's been there for years and years. I mean, if you go to Cambridge now, it's not the nicest green area in Cambridge by any means, is it? No, because it's surrounded on two sides by very busy roads. Yeah, very polluted. Anyway, the decision was made. We'll have a feast on Parker's Peace. The idea was that 15,000... Of the deserving poor should enjoy a free meal on Parker's Peace. Very appropriate. And the dinner was to be followed by rustic sports. More of that later. (laughs) I know you're you're agog to hear about rustic sports. Is it Skittles? (laughs) You won't even believe it, what it is. If only it was Skittles. So each parish in the area was tasked with selecting their own suitable deserving poor. And it was to be a selection of adults and Sunday school children. Right. I mean, surely the poorest of the poor were not going to Sunday school. Well, the workhouse poor were excluded. Oh, they were too poor. Well, I guess they weren't considered deserving poor. Right, because they were basically getting looked after in the workhouse. Well, or they were there because they'd fallen into absolute destitution. or what, they, you the know... children? You can't well, blame the children. I know, but this is, it's this idea, isn't it, of deserving poor and undeserving poor. And yeah, there was there's a kind of like a comfortable level that people were happy with saying we're going to give these guys a free meal, but let's not worry too much about the the others, the ones right at the bottom, the laudanum fiends. Yeah, but so what's a bit strange though is that while dinner was free for fifteen thousand delegates, twenty five thousand tickets were prepared to those who wished to spectate the event. <laughs> But they're going to do like eating competitions, like those, you know, well, where, like how many uh, frankfurters can you swallow in a minute? That it's kind of thing. quite mad, isn't it? So basically, the the middle classes and the upper classes of Cambridge could buy tickets to sit all around the edge of the feast and watch the poor people eating their <laughs> eating their feast. This is clearly before the invention of football. I just don't know. What did they think was going to happen well, that's that was what I so mean. Like, fun? You know, there was very little going on in their lives, I guess, that they could mm. uh, come and spectate. So. I suppose so. So so it, in, in one sense, you know, it was a ticketed event, but not the bit you would expect where you get to eat the food. It was ticketed to be a person that, that just watched... Is that how they subsidised the um, food? 
Well, p- presumably. Right. So maybe then it wasn't a, such a spectator sport. Maybe it was like buy a ticket and, and do a good thing. Mm, I don't know, because in Harridan's painting, you can see some very well-dressed people in the foreground, like having a merry time watching the poor people eating their carvery. I don't know. Anyway, I, fa- I think that's quite strange. Really strange. Really strange. And more tickets, more people to watch than actually participate. But I guess they were all having a fun day. Did you get anything for your ticket beyond being able to spectate? I don't know. No, no goodie bag. (laughs) Something under the seat. Yeah, hamper, you know. (laughs) I don't know. Now, how did the day progress? Firstly, with a service at Great St Mary's Church next to Cambridge Marketplace. Between 12 and 1, 2,700 Sunday school children and 300 teachers began to process from Great St Mary's Church towards Parker's Peace. The children were waving flags. Sure. From their parish, so they would have their little parish flags sown, oh, and they were fun. waving their flags, and it was like do a big fun event. Do the flags of the still exist? I, see, I guess Can they probably do. Can you tell me the flag of Trumpington? No, I can't. No. I can't. Trumpington had their own coronation events. Oh, they were like we're, we're too good for. Well, I guess the ones that don't get selected just make their own fun, don't they? <laughs> so there were probably kind of mini celebrations going on all around right, yeah. Cambridge as well, but this was the, you know, the big the big one. Once at the piece, these close to 3,000 children joined the 12,000 selected others at the location where the dinner was to take place. Just imagine that many people. Yeah, I'm not sure I really can. We can see from Harridan's painting how the seating was arrayed. In the centre of the piece was built a circular structure, kind of a bit like a bandstand. Right. And this was home for the day to 100 musicians who were playing music to keep everyone entertained and keep the mood jolly. Around the bandstand, splayed out like the rays of a sun, so going out kind of from the centre outwards, were 70 long tables 70 very long tables and this was to be the seating for the 15,000 deserving poor where did the spectators sit then the the spectators formed an encompassing ring all around the edge and they had wooden structures were put up for them to sit on or some of them were kind of standing on the like were arrayed on the buildings peering out (laughs) right on top of the the story car park (laughs) Probably by that hotel, you know, they were all peeping out. So you get a kind of, yeah, bandstand in the middle, then you get your 70 tables, and then right round the edge you've got your spectators, paid spectators. reality checkpoint exist then? Could you tell the listeners what reality checkpoint is? It is a lamppost in the centre of Parker's Peace. I think it has entered popular culture beyond just the people of Cambridge, hasn't it? I'm not sure that's true. No? Okay. It's quite ornate. It's a kind of cast iron lamppost with four dolphin decorations on it but it's like a kind of countercultural icon isn't it is it isn't it i mean we used to use it just as a meeting place right you'd say all meet before everyone had mobile phones i kind of when you're I, young you like meet at reality like checkpoint the 60s i guess <sighs> isn't that when it when did it become reality checkpoint i don't know oh, okay i mean this is, sounds like a whole nother mini episode we <laughs> need to it's, find it's out about reality post. checkpoint <laughs> oh but you seem to think it imbued with a mystical power well, maybe maybe or maybe that's just personally I've imbued it with that power. You, do you think Pink Floyd were involved? Yeah, why, why not? <laughs> okay. No, I don't know. Anyway, I don't think it was there no. at the time of the great feasting. Dinner was served at 2pm. I'd call that lunch, of course. Next, we'll hear the menu. Okay. It's quite carvery based. Right. 
Which makes sense. Of course. Because yeah. it's a lot feeding of people. Feeding lots of people en masse. Was You're it not... a um, serve yourself buffet? Like a no, 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 no. Toby no. Carberry in? No. So in addition to each parish selecting their deserving poor, they also had to put forward people to help with things like cooking, being waiting staff, That's... kind of general stewarding, yeah, that sort of thing. 1,500 people on a free-for-all, can you? No, no way. That's going to be an absolute crush. So it was mainly Carberry because you can't be cooking, you know, individual scallops for 15,000 people can you you can't cooking everyone's steak just right so it's carvery what there was a total of 1029 joints of meat beef mutton pork veal and bacon there was also a whole sheep which was cooked at the bull inn which used to be on Trumpington Road. Many of the other carvery joints were cooked in the college kitchens right. so some of the colleges kind of offered to help out for the day. Very unlike them. Yeah, you know, it was a special day. <laughs> Guess how many loaves of bread? 15,000 people. One loaf of bread between three people. 500? No, so inexplicably, now that I've heard your maths, because it, it seems fair, 45,000 loaves of bread. <laughs> so three loaves of bread per person? Yeah, but now I'm wondering if it was 4,500 and I've added well, a zero. 4,500 is still more than one loaf of bread. No, it isn't. And they were made of best wheat flour. Of course, don't you? Loads of bread. Condiments. Yep. 72 pounds of mustard. 125 gallons of pickles. (laughs) That's 1,000 jars of pickles. And 140 pounds of salt. Wow. Yep. Puddings. Great. My favourite bit. Well, it won't be what you think. So this is is more like... like, Suet and stuff. Yeah, it's suet. (laughs) (laughs) It's suet, raisins, that kind of thing. 1,608 puddings were assembled... Using quite terrifying amounts of suet, milk, raisins and eggs. Guess how many eggs? Um, uh, 20,000. No, 3,300 eggs. Half this game. Think how long they must have been saving those eggs for. I don't know what the supply chain was like in the 1800s. I was just wondering how many chickens lived in Cambridge and how many eggs. <laughs> Is it well, like... You've kept chickens. How many eggs does a chicken lay per week? No, they lay one a day. It's one a day. It, you know, a, a healthy chicken. Yeah. You're going to get, well, six a week, maybe. Yeah, Sunday off. (laughs) Unless it's a storm. Right. You know what happens in a storm? More eggs. A chicken lays a fucking massive egg. It happened a few times when I... um, Because they're frightened. I think it's it's fear and it's the idea that they are trying to get all their resources out, basically. <laughs> well, because they think it's the end. Yeah, because they think it's the end. So um, If I go, then my line will live on in I'll this massive egg. I'll see if I can egg. find the picture. I've had some pictures of a normal-sized egg and then these storm eggs, right. which were, I would say, probably not quite double-sized, but right. not that far off. Right. And quite often they'd be double yokers. Did they taste any different? I'm assuming you ate No, they them. just were big. So did you make just like a massive fried egg? You just use more egg. Yeah, right. oh, sorry, you'd use that egg and that. That would be more egg. But it just was fascinating to me that the chickens would... Something in the chicken's brain was like, get all your eggs out! (laughs) It might be the last chance. Get all your eggs out, but in one egg. Get Just put it all in one egg, one massive egg. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Back to the meal. Beer. Yep. Very important. 99 barrels. Mm, How many pints in a barrel? I don't know, but I can tell you how they worked out how much beer they needed. Okay. They worked it out as follows. Three pints per man. Yeah. One pint per woman Uh and half a pint per child. (laughs) (laughs) And then they got to their total of how many barrels they needed. Good maths if you're planning a party. Based on those calculations. (laughs) 
And they were also provided with six pounds of snuff and a hundred pounds of tobacco. Oh, and they were given pipes and things if right. they wanted. Was so, it all just a plan to uh, send the poor to an early grave? I, don't, I think it was, you know, Get no the one... cholesterol up. <laughs> cram them with meat. Yeah. And then <laughs> the watch women, them smoke themselves stupid. The women were only allowed one pipe, though. Whilst simultaneously snuffing themselves. Yeah. What a fine feast, though. Think of all that food and all that tobacco. All that mustard. And apparently the poor behaved very well. Any vegetables? I haven't heard quantities for that. They've got a little list at the Museum of Cambridge by the painting of what the feast was, and they don't mention vegetables. (laughs) So I'm not sure. I, I mean, it's hard to believe there wouldn't have been potatoes. There had been some concerns in advance when it was being planned that the poor would run riot. Right. And it would all descend into chaos and slaughter. You know what the poor are like. (laughs) Exactly. But apparently, no, they behaved impeccably. And I don't know if that was a disappointment to the spectators or not. (laughs) I don't know if they were hoping that it was all going to kick off. I would say you need to account for a lot more than three pints of beer per man if you want bad behaviour. I reckon they'd have had little cheeky hip flasks on the go. Or they'd have just stolen the kid's beer. Because a kid can't fight back when you're trying to steal its beer. At 5pm, feasting done. The crowds made their way to Midsummer Common, another green area. Cambridge has a lot of green areas. It's nice like that. Midsummer Common's probably like a 10-minute walk from Parker's Peace. Yeah, it's probably about a mile away. I mean, 15,000 of you all walking, though. It's going to take you ages, isn't it? Like trying to get between stages at Glastonbury. (laughs) Absolute nightmare. Next on the agenda, it's Rustic Sports. (laughs) (laughs) What fun! What fun! Rustic sports were commonly held at fairs, galas, jubilees, fates, and so on. Yeah. And it's kind of a—it's capitalised. It's like a recognised capital um, R, capital S, a recognised category of sporting endeavour. Right, rustic sports. Because I also found it in an Enid Porter book. Okay, where there's a whole section of rustic sports. <laughs> we should try and get a, a movement to get um, accepted into the Olympics. Let's first hear what some of them are yeah, right, before okay. you start making these bold claims. Do any of them involve farmyard animals? At least one. Yeah, is it like Catch the Greasy Pig? Possibly (laughs) more. I'll start with a few that we've heard of. Okay. So we can think of some kind of classic rustic sports. Yeah. Jumping in sacks. Oh, yeah, the sack race. Sack race, fine. Wheelbarrow race. Yeah. That's just where one human holds another human and pretends they're a wheelbarrow. By the legs. Yeah, so... I mean, well, one human on their hands, one human on their feet. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing that our listeners probably know, but I'm just, what if there's someone somewhere who doesn't know what a wheelbarrow race is? Yeah, I mean, if you've never been to a school sports day, then why would you? So one person is upright and they're holding the legs of someone else who's on their hands. Yeah. And the person has to scuttle on their hands yeah. and the person holding their legs runs behind, yeah. thus creating a human wheelbarrow. You can't carry anything in there. You could try and balance something on mm, someone's back. It's risky, There's isn't no it? There's no sides on the human wheelbarrow. <laughs> no. So wheelbarrow race, jumping in sacks. So far, so good. We're happy, aren't yeah. we, with that? Bobbing for oranges. Okay, yeah. In big troughs. Yeah. Running races, just classic. Just people so running. So you're telling me there already is an Olympic rustic sports. <laughs> also, though, donkey races. Oh, yeah. So there's your farmyard animal. Right. Then some others that perhaps less known yeah. to the modern day ear. Getting towards the bottom of the list now. And luckily, Enid Porter did tell me a bit more about some of these because I looked at the list and I was like, what in the hell is this? And then some of them I have just had to guess what it is. So <laughs> Newmarket Bork. 
bork. I think bork. New market As in like, bork. it's totally borked. What's that? What does that mean? It's like a kind of nerdy tech term for something's broken. Oh, my computer's borked. Oh. B-O-R-K-E-D, I think. Well, this is B-A-U-L-K. Oh, like bulk. Yeah, new market bulk. Mm. Or how to rise in life. Subtitle, How to Rise in Life. This involved the erection of scaffold poles stuck into the ground vertically. Right. They were then soaped up. Soap up those poles, please. So is this where the climb the greasy pole yeah, uh, so, expression comes from? And then youths, it specifies youths, <laughs> yeah. would attempt to scale the poles in order to win such prizes as legs of mutton and new trousers. <laughs> well, you probably just ruined your trousers going up. Your trousers are so soapy now. I suppose soap is better than animal-based fat products. Well, I'm not clear on it. Were the prizes on top of the poles <laughs> and you had to like scale up the pole and grab or your prize? was just getting to the top of the pole enough. And then, and then you slid back down to air. And would hand you a leg of mutton. Exactly, or fling your new trousers at you. <laughs> so that's New Market Bork or How to Rise in Life. Okay. Climbing up a soapy pole <laughs> as quickly as you can. It's a good metaphor. I mean, I would like to see that at the Olympics. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I feel like at Japan 2021, that could have worked quite well. Because it had a kind of a carefree air, didn't it? Well, that's because all you ever watched was rock climbing, skateboarding and BMX. Oh, yeah, I was watching the carefree sports. <laughs> okay, so next one, biscuit bolting. Oh, is that just eating as many biscuits as you can? I think it must be. Yeah. I think it's just cramming biscuits into your face. <laughs> I think I'd be pretty good at that. I don't know if it's like the first person to eat 20 biscuits wins yeah. or you've got a set time and you just cram those biscuits Yeah, it's in. like how, how many can you do in a minute? So I'm not sure, but I assume it's to do with eating a lot of biscuits very quickly. I believe competitive eating is no longer recognised by the Guinness Book of Records because of the inherent danger that comes with trying to beat competitive beating records. Yes, because it's quite absurd. <laughs> yes. So have people seriously damaged themselves? I, I, I can only assume so. Have you seen the film Taxidermia? No, I don't believe I have. It's a Hungarian film and it's from, I think, sort of around the year 2000, maybe a little bit later. But it's excellent. I I lent my DVD of it to somebody and they never gave it back. Anyway, I think it's someone who listens to this. So maybe I'm going to get a DVD sent back to me afterwards. And one of the, it's about three generations of a family. And one of the men in the family is a competitive eater. Mm. So there's a lot of very disgusting competitive eating scenes, followed by a lot of extreme vomiting scenes. <laughs> it was that era in cinema where European cinema was like ever more extreme. Right. What? How can we most make our audiences hate everything that they're watching and simultaneously find it entertaining? <laughs> Much like competitive eating itself, I suppose. So anyway, I recommend Taxidermia. If you can still get hold of it. Next one, a jingling match. <laughs> jingling what? In this match, a lot of people with blindfolds on would try to catch someone without a blindfold on. The person without the blindfold was called the jingler. Right. And they would have a bell and they would like run around jingling a bell. And all the blindfolded people had to try and catch them just based on the sound of where the bell was. Well, that's now how blind football works. With a bell? Yeah, so the football has a bell in it, or has something that makes a noise. Oh, okay. And that's how, uh, yeah, blind football works. Olympic so, sport or no? It's probably in the Paralympics. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But is anyone known as the jingler? Well, I'm not, well the ball, I guess. But... <laughs> I feel like this could be the basis for a horror film. <laughs> the jingler, don't you think it sounds sinister? Yeah. Come like... and join me for a jingling batch, little children. <laughs> that's how he'd speak. 
And he'd jingle, and the children would be yeah, like, "Yeah, jingling!" Sinister. They'd be out playing, you know, and then there'd just be a jingle around the corner, and then it'd be like the child catcher, wouldn't it? Exactly. Or they'd think they were going to win a prize, but all that would happen was the jingler would snatch them. Yeah, in a cell, and it would be a bad end, mm. a horrifying end. If the jingler was caught, the person that caught them won. But if the jingler got to the end of the allotted time, which Enid Porter reckons was around twenty minutes, which seems like bloody ages, then they would be the winner. Maybe some new trousers with a <laughs> Or a leg of lamb. The next one, a grinning match. Do you know about these? Um, no. I think you might recognise the description, although okay. we're not... Oh, is it gurning? Yeah, it right. sounds very like gurning. Tell me about gurning. Well, just pulling ridiculous faces, essentially. Yeah. Usually like toothless old men, isn't it? Like, well, you know, they... making their top lips go up over their noses and stuff. <laughs> Bottom lips, sorry, not top lips. In the old times, these were called grinning matches. Right. Contestants would compete to see who could make the most horrible face, the most awful grimace, and the most kind of convoluted, rubbery expression. They would typically wear horse collars around their yeah, necks. Yeah, that is gurning. And that, I believe, is to stop them using their hands, maybe, to put any expressions into place. Didn't know that, but yeah. I, I don't know what else it would be for. And then they take turns to see who could make the most horrifying visage. Who judged it and how? I don't know. Maybe one of the 25,000 paying spectators got to judge. Maybe they just all shouted boo or hooray <laughs> from the sides. Oh, so the feast spectators followed everybody to uh, I Midsummer Comet. I don't know. But no. if I was a spectator... You'd tag along to see what was going to happen Come on, next. I want to see the rustic sports. That's the best bit of the day. <laughs> That's arguably the only bit that is suitable for a spectator. Yeah, it's it's literally matches and races. It's made for spectators. There's various depictions of grinning matches by cartoonists of the time, such as Thomas Rowlandson, the English caricaturist. So right. if you look up grinning match, you can find kind of funny pictures of I imagine people. Punch magazine. Yeah, people making these horrifying faces. Okay, the next thing is called rooting extraordinary. Is that an Australian thing? <laughs> No, thank you. And in this, boys had their hands tied behind their backs and with their mouths tried to retrieve penny loaves from a barrel of treacle. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most silly one yet. Were the the penny loaves sunk in the treacle? Yes. So you had to dunk your whole head into a barrel of treacle? Yes. And then your head was discovered in treacle? But I don't know how deep. It's a barrel, so it must be quite deep. So it sounds hazardous, doesn't it? I, yeah. I think you could easily suffocate in a barrel of treacle. Well, I mean, you'd probably get out. I mean, you're just bending over it, right? I know, but what if you were so intent on finding the penny loaf that you didn't come out when you needed oh, to? There were spectators around. Somebody would haul you out. Maybe. You're not going to die in a barrel of treacle. I'm worried you not are. amongst friends. Rooting extraordinary. Just get the treacle. Get the penny loaf out of the treacle. That was that competition. There were a few others, and the most notable to my eyes and ears, is dipping for eels. (laughs) And this, to me, seems like it may be quite specific to the region. Yeah, you're not going to be able to lay your hands on eels in most places, are you? Because things like the grinning matches, the jingling match, a lot of the kinds of racing, you find those all around Britain in similar fates and galas. But I'm not sure about dipping for eels because what you need is a ready supply of eels. Mm, Sure. And is that available elsewhere? The East End. Yeah, they were constantly dipping for eels. Now, I can't, I couldn't find too much else about what dipping for eels is, but what I imagine is that eels. There's are... a barrel of treacle. <laughs> no. So I don't think that this dipping for eels can involve the mouth, <laughs> but I could be wrong. I think the idea must be that eels are quite slippery. So is this just a case of trying to catch eels with your hands? 
I think it would involve a tub of slippery eels and each... Would they, would they be in water? Yeah, you'd put yeah. them in water and each youth or senior, each person, would be trying to grab as many eels out of the slippery tub. So it was like, how many eels can you grab in a minute? Maybe. As opposed to, can you grab an eel? Well, that I'm just imagining what this involves. I mean, there is a chance it involved the mouth, trying to catch the eels with no. the mouth. You'd never catch an eel with your mouth. It's too much to think of, isn't it? But would you catch a penny loaf in a jar of treacle? Well, I mean, it's not trying to get away from you. <laughs> Nor is it like to swim so down I, your esophagus and choke you. I think it must be slippery and you're trying to grab them with your fingers. And that's the thing, what dipping frills is all about. But they won't be as slippery as a hagfish. Because you know a hagfish will produce slime upon oh, yeah, contact. Oh like a tench. It will just absolutely spew out slime out of its body. Mm. It's insane. Mm. An eel cannot do that. No. It's just slippery on its own terms, in its own way. So that's the rustic sports. Do we have, is there like a a leaderboard or, you know, most notable performance? (sighs) I think it was just each competition for itself. You chanced your luck. They were probably all going on simultaneously as well. So Mm. you'd think, well, I find that my strength lies in rooting extraordinary. Or you might say, my best thing is going to be the biscuit bolting. And then you'd go and compete in that event. There was no like decathlon where you compete in all of them. (laughs) Your points are a mass. Just think for a minute. If you did each one of those rustic sores, <laughs> your firstly, clothes would be ruined. You'd be absolutely soapy, soaped up to the maximum. You'd be covered in treacle. Yeah. Your hands would be probably covered in tiny bites from all the eels you'd been trying or to grab. The very best, the gunk from the eels. Or run red raw from being a human wheelbarrow. <laughs> your face would be really sore from gurning. You'd be a ruin. Well, you know they're trying to talk about removing the equestrian events from modern pentathlon, I say. Yeah, they've passed a secret vote. Yeah, get Rustic Games in there. Fill the gap with wheelbarrow race. Or, okay. Uh... Well, we could start a campaign. Rustic sports, we could say. Yeah, because modern pentathlon is basically misnamed, isn't it? Because it's not modern, you're saying. Yeah. So... Well, rustic sports isn't modern either. No, exactly. So it's more fitted to the Modern name. pentathlon would be like, make a TikTok video in 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> I don't know if it's quite a sporting endeavour. <laughs> We could say bring back rustic sports, sure. Yeah. They might rename some of them. I'm not sure they'd go with Newmarket Bork or How to Rise no, in Life. No, it's not going to cut it with the international market, is it? No. Can you imagine Just... trying to sell the TV rights to that in Thailand? People would be going, what is Newmarket? Yeah. What is Bork? I don't know the answer. Now, that's the end of rustic sports. What's your oh, favourite? Uh, probably treacle barrel dipping bread. Sure, treacle barrel dipping bread. Yeah. Rooting extraordinary. After some hours of rustic sports and general jollity... How do you think they finished the day? Mm, fireworks. Fireworks! Of course they did. <laughs> it was an absolute extravaganza of fireworks. I know what Midsummer Commons all about. Yeah, that's where they still hold the fireworks today. Not this year, of course. But in those days, as as today, each grand event was finished off with a extravaganza of fireworks. They had gold snake ones, those like gold snakies, all the white ones. They had all kinds. And the grand finale consisted of the imperial crown recreated in fireworks with the words long live the queen surrounding it very impressive but they do that still in the modern era don't they i know it's just it's they have, really well, you good know, thank you very much now go home you know, in, <laughs> in illuminated fire letters. but in in 1838 imagine that to see yeah but firework technology has not advanced significantly <laughs> since 1838 i don't think i suppose it hasn't needed to it, no. it reached its peak yeah. quite early on somebody it... went oh can we time it with some classical music <laughs> beethoven's fifth yeah, is that that's always been the, the most innovation that's ever happened well wow. so on this occasion long live the queen 
And that was the end of Coronation Day in Cambridge. There was no after party? Well, I'm sure there were numerous after parties, but they are not recorded in the history books. Did the White Swan exist then? (laughs) The White Swan is a famous, infamous after-hours drinking establishment in Cambridge. It used to be much better because it had a quiz machine and they've taken that out now and there's no reason to go anymore. That's the story of the Coronation Feast. That's more fun than I thought it was going to be. It's loads of fun, isn't it? Yeah. I think the trouble is because I started off with all that dry succession chat. Right, yeah. You were worried it was going to carry on down that route. I thought it was all going to be a bit Jane Austen. But before you knew it, we were up to our eyes in a barrel of treacle. I hope you enjoyed that fun chat about the coronation dinner. Exciting news that I can tell you more about soon, but for the moment, I'm very pleased to say that I will be creating, curating, partaking in an event at the Museum of Cambridge itself in late January, which will be a fun sort of a live event. And I'm very honoured to have been asked and it will be great fun to be roaming around Enid Porter's old haunt. But yes, more more news on that very, very soon. But late January is the time to look out for that. If you want to hear the news as soon as it comes, please follow us on Instagram. Ruth underscore is underscore stranger. And I'll also be putting updates on our website, which is ruthisstranger.co.uk. Yeah, exciting times to come. More on it soon. In the meantime, thank you, Chris Rogers. Thank you very much. Thank you, as ever, for listening. And we'll be back soon with more stories from the weird histories of East Anglia. Goodbye.